This is the Digital Orthopedics Podcast, bringing you insights shared from the stage at DOCSF, the Digital Orthopedics Conference hosted by the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of California, San Francisco. Find out more about our conference and join our community by visiting docsf.health, docsf.health. Welcome back to the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. My name is Dr. Stefan Obini, the founder and chair of the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco, otherwise known as DocSF. I am your host for this podcast series. On our last podcast, we heard from a great panel of speakers, including Dr. Shrat Kasuma, formerly at Apple, where he led the effort to create a partnership between Apple Watch and Zimmer Biomet. Their goal is to use patient-derived sensor data to create predictive analytic models that will inform patient recovery. Indeed, the use of sensors in healthcare, and in particular in orthopedics, is very hot, which is why the second of our focus lectures is dedicated to sensors. In this segment, we asked Duncan Bradley from McLaren, yep, McLaren, the automotive company, to discuss how sensors revolutionized the automotive industry, starting with Formula One cars. It's an instructive story for how sensors changed the game for an entire industry. Following Duncan, we asked Dr. Shisha Treja, the CIO at Mount Sinai, to share with us his vision of how sensor data will impact healthcare, and specifically the delivery of care. And we're fortunate to have Dan Kendall, the host and founder of Digital Health Today, a leading digital health podcast as our moderator. Let's join the conversation as I introduce Dan on the stage of DocSF 2019. Uh, and with that, I have the great pleasure of introducing you to Dan Kendall. Dan Kendall is the founder and managing editor of Digital Health Today, a podcast I personally listen to on the way to work whenever there's an episode available, which eventually led me to call him up and say, hey, listen, let's talk. So I want to invite some of the people you have interviewed and please connect me with them. And he's always been very gracious to share his extensive Rolodex uh, in that process. And many of the speakers that have come before you have come from there. Dan's going to uh, Dan is a really, really good interviewer, so I think you'll find that he's going to get great insight and help us um, moderate the session. I'll have him come introduce his panelists. Hello, everyone. Thanks very much for that introduction. Uh, you and I actually met on Twitter first. I think Mike and Nick put us in touch there uh, after I'd interviewed them for the podcast, and uh, and that's how we first had an opportunity to connect. So Twitter brings around a lot of real connections, as well as the ones that we keep in the Twitter sphere. Um, I'm Dan Kendall. It's really my pleasure to introduce uh, the next two speakers. Uh, I appreciate all of you coming back early from or on time from lunch so we can really dive into these sessions. Uh, the first speaker is Duncan Bradley. He spent about 20 years in product design. He's uh, uh, an interesting mix between industrial designer and industrial engineer, which are two things that are sometimes in conflict, but it's good to see them uh, embodied by the same individual. He's with McLaren. He leads the health and human performance uh, business unit of that uh, organization, McLaren Applied Technologies. So ladies and gentlemen, please rev your engines, put your hands together, and help me welcome Duncan Bradley. So uh, hopefully we'll see my presentation rev up in a second. Um, so uh, thank you, uh, Stefano, for inviting me. I'm going to tell you a little story today, um, and you may be well be thinking, what the hell is a guy from a car company in a Formula One team doing on stage here? But I'm going to tell you a story, and I'm going to plot the course from Bruce McLaren, our founder, um, through to orthopedics in 15 minutes, um, if I get a presentation, that is. <laughs> so just a bit of background then while we're waiting for that to come up. Um, 
I joined um, McLaren about 12 years ago. And at the time, Ron Dennis, if you're into motorsport, was um, you know, one of the big dogs in, in motorsport. And he, he said, well, you know, we're investing so much money in Formula One technology um, and latterly hypercar technology. You know, each year we spend 200 million on this car and the, you know, the technology goes out the window more or less and we restart. There must be something more useful to, to do with that. Um, and we started Applied Technologies, um, and I was one of the uh, founding members of that uh, about 12 years ago. Um, so I'm going to tell you the story of how we've moved from Formula One into health, which we see as one of the big growth areas for us. So um, back in the day, uh, this is Bruce McLaren, and back in the day uh, when he used to develop cars, it was perfectly acceptable for um, the cars to be developed through a conversa conversation. So if you know anything about Bruce, and, and actually there's a film about Bruce, which you should have a look at. He was an amazing driver, an amazing innovator, uh, and knew a lot about cars. And the way things happened then was that you, know, you used to design a car, drive it, you used to have a chat with your engineer, you used to go and fiddle with some things, back out again. Um, and that was great for a long time. And you know, Bruce was enormously successful along with everyone else at that time. But in the um, around about the um, 1980s, Around about the 1980s, something happened in Formula One a little bit before anything else in the industry. And we had kind of a perfect digital storm. Uh, and what happened was that it was fueled by large amounts of investment. Now, ironically, some of that investment was from cigarette man manufacturers, which was perfectly fine at the time. Uh, now, not so. And it was fueled by huge amounts of sponsorship. And what happened was the, comp it, the competition got really, really heavy. Um, the uh, te technology was uh, accelerated massively. And it was really the difference between the teams was really quite small. And so McLaren decided to pioneer something, and we were the first to do this. We started censoring a car, and we started censoring it to understand what was going on. So not to take away that conversation about the driver, but to embellish it. So when the driver was saying, well, that you know, the back end feels a bit loose or it's washing out in that corner, we started to know why. Uh, we started to know how the tyres were performing, how the engine was performing, how the car was moving around the track. Uh, and we actually, we were so successful with this, we got banned. And the only reason we were allowed back in was if we supplied this to everyone else. Uh, actually, we made a great business out of that, and we still have a great business out of that. So, you know, about that time, this was in the you know, 1980s, and that really started out our sensor, you know, our sense of, I guess, our development of sensors. And I want to just show you a video now, because around about that time, Formula One accelerated, and there's a video now that just fills in the gaps of a little bit about what McLaren is, but also um, how we evolved into a um, technology company. I'll tell you a story. A story of man's ambition to win. To be the best. It's a story that started not far from here, more than 50 years ago, by a man named Bruce McLaren. The aim was simple. The challenge was not. To take on the giants of the sport and to beat them again and again. A race team was born and a legacy written. Written in actions and achievements, not words. And the achievements grew. Champions were made. Records were broken. New chapters were added to this great story 
each better than the last. But as the achievements grew, so too did the ambition. name McLaren came to stand for so much more than racing cars. It became a byword for innovation, for setting new standards in everything it did. The seed that was planted many years earlier had now grown beyond its founder's wildest dreams. As McLaren's reputation spread, its business grew ever stronger. And so a new dream took shape. A world-class home for a world-class company. An environmentally sensitive architectural icon shaped by the DNA of the brand. A showcase for achievement. A center for excellence. A quiet, beautiful, and exclusive environment. A cradle of innovation. technology center where people come together from around the world to share in the spirit of progress to advance the outer limits of possibility McLaren it's a simple story and you are in it So just to go back to Formula One, just for very briefly, and I'll get into some healthcare um, work. The digital revolution carried on and sensors weren't enough. So we understood the car, but um, we went one step further than that. And we started to get into prediction. And this was really, I mean, nowadays it's called the digital twin, but we effectively created the digital twin in a car. Um, and that allowed us to design parts virtually. Um, it allowed us to establish a performance levels before we've even got to the track. Uh, and also then start to predict how we might doing a race. And then even, the, even then in the race, the strategy is then updated live with real-time information. So we're in kind of this space where we're handling real-time information, rich, fast data, we're running algorithms, we're beaming it across the world, um, and we're predicting and influencing um, an outcome, in this case, case a race. So things move very quickly for, quickly for us. Um, and I often get the cast the question, which, you know, what is the driver doing this? Um, and actually, it's one of the most important components of that. And, you know, is it the driver or is it the car? If I had a, a pound, or maybe I should have a dollar now, we've got Brexit. But um, <laughs> if I had a dollar for every time someone asked me that, um, I'd probably be a little richer. But the truth is, is that whether you've got a fast car or a slow car, you want the driver to access all of that performance. And for him to do that, you need to be in a, he needs to be in an absolutely tip-top condition. And so we started the second part of this story, which is we understood the machine. Uh, we started to understand the human and to do that. So whilst we're kind of in a, I guess, in, even for a sports team, we've only got really two athletes. Um, okay, there's secondary drivers, but two athletes. And whilst we might be paying them a lot, um, you know, these guys get paid, you know, millions of pounds a year to, to to race actually we're spending as i mentioned 200 million pounds on a car you know a year so if he can't access that performance we pretty much 
you start to lose money on that. And so we started out a second, second sort of wave. And about 20 years ago, we started to look at how we manage drivers in a holistic way. And a lot of this is completely applicable to every one of us. It's just that these are in a kind of a cauldron of a controlled environment where we can look at them. So the next... Um, Next video, I just want to quickly show, it's a short one, is our McLaren DNA program. So it's nothing to do with genomics, actually. It's actually how we uh, identify what great looks like in, 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 our, in our drivers, and particularly this one's for actually our young drivers. But what it tells you about is, um, there's a great introduction by Mika Hakkinen. It's about how it happens for us, and it gives you a bit of details about what we do around the human side of it. When I look back my young age, when I was racing go-karts, example, when I was 10 years old, 14 years old, 16, 17, I was racing go-karts, really physical, you know, really physical uh, uh, performance what I needed to do. It was just enough. It's, it was not enough in the morning eating porridge. Yeah. You know, you need to know more. You need to know more about your, your focus, how I keep the concentration for a long time, uh, what muscles I really need when I'm driving a car, uh, you know, these kind of, all kind of, these kind of uh, elements needs the science behind. It's not just eating a porridge, which is fantastic, but it needs a science behind. And if the, the McLaren can provide this, it is a mega fantastic. and simulator for um, for practice and, and to, to, to develop the car also with the engineers but uh, for a driver point of view uh, practicing the stars uh, memorizing these movements is, is part of our training and uh, more you use better you get uh, they give me great support from the physical side mental side and guidance on um, nutrition and everything. You can get to, to a certain point, but then you, you really need the, the knowledge and people who had the experience who brought young drivers all the way to the top. So I think that's very, very important to, to have that uh, knowledge um, to you. The DNA Perform program provides a natural transition for competing drivers aged 13 years and above looking to transition into single-seater racing and the higher motor racing formulas. The specialized program accelerates the driver's learning potential through an individualized pathway tailored to their performance signature. The personalized program will unlock a variety of new modules and tools to take their development to the next level using cutting-edge technology, scientific principles, and supported by world-class experts in the field of driver coaching, engineering and human performance. It's a good preparation for us. We, we get a whole package of, uh, of, of training behind us. Uh, also a lot of media training, a lot of uh, technical training with the engineers as well. So it's a great opportunity for, for every young driver and a, a great chance to, um, to be connected with the Formula 1 team. DNA Foundation is an educational platform 
for young aspiring kart level drivers. It spans over two years and comprises of two courses and monthly updates. The program is aimed at understanding your performance signature, which is made up of elements, mindset, nutrition, movement, recovery and skill, and introduces them to our P1 process framework, which aims to optimise a driver's readiness ahead of competition. This has been used by racing drivers to win races and championships. Drivers are taught by leading experts through fun interactive workshops designed to educate, inspire and prepare for competition. So a little while ago we realised that not all, all races are on, uh, on tracks and if we could take some of that data analytics, that human performance, start applying it to um, uh, the health industry, we could make some great gains. And um, as you all realise, we're kind of sitting in this digital, uh, pivotal moment at the moment in digital health and you know, personalised medicine, collecting data, fusing it together. Um, actually, the, the moment seems really long because we started this about 10 years ago. But 10 years ago, we uh, started to look at how we might apply some of that technology. And actually, some of the first uh, companies to pick this up were some of the pharma companies and we started to look at uh, actually I think pharma 2.0 or 3.0 when it was there uh, adaptive trials and actually taking information in real time uh, developing our own sensors beaming it to um, I don't think it was even called cloud-based then but a server somewhere wirelessly and running analytics and the whole point there was to have a better conversation a better conversation with the patient about how their bodies were performing in order to um, modify uh, an outcome in some way and over the years we've partnered with a number of companies uh, Pfizer, GSK, uh, we've, looked, we've tracked ALS, we've managed uh, medication on stroke stroke patients, uh, we've managed weight loss programs um, and even started to look at um, modifying pathways for things like prostate cancer, reducing those down. So the technology itself has been used quite extensively over the last 10 years. And today we use that data science, um, particularly uh, I think a big difference is how we scale some of that technology because if there's one thing that you could throw at us is Formula One is kind of a point solution, it doesn't scale. And over the last few years we've been investing some of those technologies to scale this, this out across illness, wellness and performance. But as it's been mentioned quite a few times, and it's the same in Formula One here, is we have the context of the, of the race to, to map the data against, and it's exactly the same for a patient. And so the products that we're developing um, have really two things, I think, that uh, define them, um, our analytics products, and that's um, mapping the data to, to pathways to allow us to give context, context as to how that data can be used. And we learned a long time ago that big data didn't really work for us. Um, and the reason it didn't work for us is because the data itself took too long to mine. Um, and we talked a lot, a lot this morning about you know, connectivity and uh, the number of sensors that are coming online. Back in the 80s, we went through this. And what we found is we just had huge amounts of data that we couldn't drive any insight out of quickly. And so our philosophy around software development, our platform development was all about driving out insight doing it very, very efficiently. And actually that's coming into play now as we see more and more sensors coming coming online. But it's the context of how you map that to that and where, it, where that actually affects a patient in, his, in their pathway. Uh, and we're starting to understand that with sort of better visibility of that patient context, we can be far more targeted with the partners that we work about the products and services. So really we're, we're not really going... Um, right to the front end. Actually, what we're doing is taking a tool set that we've been using, turning that into something scalable and allowing that to be used for uh, with our partners to be 
to provide better products or services um, to the to those patients. Uh, and we started seeing this, and we've been working in uh, orthopedics, and I'll come to, come to that in a second as to why. And we started to see really good insight, and we're able to map sort of de- disparate data sets, like clinical, non-clinical, patient-reported outcomes into the pathway, and have a look at those um, alongside where the patient is. And started to do some really interesting things with it. Um, we be able to raise awareness about sort of in the pre-op side, we developing wearables that um, from actually some of our sports development allow us to get richer data sets from the real world side of things. We started to do some risk stratification. And then in sort of the pre-op, we can pull in data from things like uh, you know, surgical robotics and post-op start to manage recovery with that. But that's all predictive. So the more we get through that, um, system, the more we can be predictive about it. And that and then that helps us uh, modify those outcomes. So, you know, for us, where we go next, we're just about to um, launch some products uh, this year. We're applying this, um, these tool sets, not just orthopedics, but uh, in pharma and a couple of other areas, weight loss programs, women's health. But um, hopefully what you can see is actually from you know, some of the learnings actually go back to the 80s. Now, we are now applying that to actually healthcare and ho- hopefully uh, really managing people's outcomes in a, in a better way. So that, that was um, hopefully a really quick fly-through of McLaren, but you can see how actually from a Formula One team, we, we really plan to do some actually meaningful um, technical developments and products and services in the, in the next couple of years. So thank you very much. Thanks very much for that, Duncan. And our next speaker is actually another person I met uh, through the podcast that I generated. I saw an article uh, about some of his work with Apple and uh, the things that he was doing around the time the research kit was launched. And uh, I reached out to him uh, sort of just uh, never having met him, not knowing if we had any uh, mutual acquaintances, but I saw this article and I said, he's working on some really cool things that I definitely want to talk about and uh, and help to uh, spotlight and, and raise more awareness of. So he's going to do that for us today. He is the chief innovation officer at Mount Sinai in Manhattan, and he's also the scientific founder of rx.health. Please put your hands together and help me welcome Ashish Atreja. It's, it's a pleasure to be here, uh, Stefano. Thank you so much for having me. This is my first time here, and, and I can really feel the, the warmth here and how much uh, I think the, the focus on innovation is. Stefano wanted me to talk about not as much innovation, which you've heard a lot, but talking about AR. And AR is not altern- you know, augmented reality, but AR is alternative reality. When all this innovation touches health system, something happens. No innovation leads to transformation. There's so many barriers within a health system that a lot of the technology we feel should be mainstream by now is never mainstream. There's a very good report that says 86% of patients want digital health tools, but only 2% of them get access to it. And health systems like us are many times perceived as the barriers. So I think what I want to talk about is share some examples why we are the barriers traditionally and why it has been changing and how technology is leading to convergence so what we have seen in the past and what we'll see in the future is going to be very different. So just very briefly about Mount Sinai, just uh, it's a seven hospital health system, uh, 7,000 physicians, 3,500 beds. And it's all over the five boroughs of New York City. So that gives us a very good spread of, we call it a learning lab. We can compare one hospital versus the other hospital. We're also positioned right uh, between Upper East Side, which is a very wealthy population, with the Spanish Harlem, which is one of the most underprivileged uh, patients in the country. So we can actually do digital intervention and see 
in a case control manner what is getting impacted across uh, the boundaries, economic boundaries and social boundaries. But what you may not know is this is our burning platform. This was an advertisement that came from our CEO. And this was very uh, futuristic. This came two years ago. And it says, if our beds are filled, it means we have failed. It's very surprising because so far for most of the health systems in the country, including Mount Sinai, hospitals are the main cash cow. But just from a hospital leadership saying that if our hospital beds are filled, we have failed, which means we're not keeping the patients outside the four walls of hospital, there's enough value-based care that we have to really provide patient-centered care, that our goal is not to fill the hospitals. With that, when I joined Mount Sinai six years ago, our mission was uh, to have apps plus analytics leading to awesome outcomes. We were looking at apps, data, sensors, as something that can really help us grow beyond the four walls of the hospital. But one of the challenges we were finding was you can't just take technologies from multiple startups and just transform the health system. We had to build the capacity of our health system to be able to ingest, integrate, activate the patients and activate the physicians. So that was my task as an innovation lab. So we put together data scientists, clinical trialists, we put together front-end designers, developers, uh, not as great as IDEO, but we keep on learning the, the design thinking phase as well. And our focus was, we call it App Lab. And, and the goal was to design technologies, build technologies, build a capacity within our health system so we can actually lead the transformation from grounds up rather than coming from outside. And one of the major mantra was we talked about innovation has to have a purpose, right? And I think there's a slight difference between West Coast and East Coast. West Coast is more daring and they can say, we can find a purpose later on. This is a cool thing. Let's do it. And I'm really jealous of that. In East Coast, there's such a big business mindset that you have to have a purpose before you even do anything. So for me and the innovation center, our digital health center, the purpose was value-based healthcare. And we knew it's a challenge. Uh, very much like EMRs took 20 years to support fee-for-service care, we knew EMRs are not going to get us across to the value-based healthcare. And you see that trend. 50% of hospitals are not able to provide bundles payment. 75% of 5,500 hospitals actually lose money on readmission penalty, right? So tools are not right. And this is just an example of Mansanai, uh, the penalties we had, this is two years ago. So we lost more than $1 million just on readmission penalty for CMS, okay? So if you expand to many other commercialized payers, you add their penalties and you add all those bundle payments and you add this ACO, an average hospital can lose as much as $100 million a year, right? So we always, there was a need to improve healthcare. There was always a need to bring on new technology. But the challenge was what's going to drive the business of those technology. But now with the value-based healthcare, we do have a business case to drive technology. So what my urge to you, the innovators, the startups, the established companies are to find in a value-based healthcare or in sometimes fee-for-service the driver of what's going to drive your business. Because if that happens, then everything is going to get adopted. And without that, no matter how cool the technology is, it's not going to become mainstream, right? And if it's not going to become mainstream, if we don't do innovation, this is what's going to happen to us, right? So my single important plea, even if you forget whatever I say, is we really have to go beyond traditional technologies, traditional EHRs, to find an answer for value-based healthcare. And that's where the field of digital medicine comes in. So we are seeing a convergence, and there was a topic with Dan Kraft mentioned about convergence. So we are seeing a convergence of patient reported outcomes with sensors, with variables, 
right? Uh, with augmented reality and telemedicine. I'll give an example of how fast things have changed with the smartphone. I was practicing telemedicine in 2002 in Cleveland Clinic, but that was a, exactly a computer or a, a screen this size, $75,000, with Cisco equipment with a T3 cable, and they was 15 miles away our employees of IT used to be, and they had to come into a nursing room or a simple room, and I had to come to a different room and like a command center, and I used to do telemedicine, right? So just with smartphone, it's completely unlocked the time in the space for telemedicine, right? I can be in a beach somewhere and I can see patients anywhere in the world if the incentives are aligned. So the same technology, the same thing, but you have smartphone in between and that has completely changed the game. And the other thing which smartphone has done is given the power in the hands of the patients. So think of it, EHRs, the computers, gave power to the physicians, right? Now we had everything about the patient documented. Patient had nothing, right? But think of one single smartphone, which all of you have, has thousand times more processing power than all the NASA supercomputers combined in 1969, which led the man on the moon, right? In 1969, if all those supercomputers can enable a man to land on the moon, think each one of our patients have thousand times that power right in their hands, right? We just have to unlock that power right? So talking about variables, 2018 is considered the year of variables, implantable, digestible. Then I've talked about it. The size is getting lower and lower. So I'm going to talk about how it started to be used. And I'll combine this thing with digital therapeutics as well. Because if you take the sensors, which is glucometer, it's not just the glucometer, which is going to change the game of a patient outcome. It's how it's integrated into the clinical workflow, right? So think about not just a sensor, but how the data flows. So if you look at, this is the first digital therapeutic that was approved by FDA around four or five years ago, Reldoc. At that time when they approached the FDA, FDA did not even know that a software can be approved by FDA. They had to convene a special body of software engineers to actually see if it can be approved. But the single most important thing, and that's the central part of what I'm gonna say, is evidence. So they looked in a randomized controlled trial over one year, this without a new medicine, just by connecting the dots, the glucometer, getting a feedback loop to the patient, they were able to decrease HbA1c, which is an average sugar over three months, by 1.2%, which was exactly the same that a $1 billion drug that was approved by FDA did three months ago, right? So FDA just looked at pure evidence, independent of technology, and said, wow, this technology without a new medicine is giving equivalent benefit to the patients as a medicine would have given. And that started the field of digital therapeutics. So now last year, FDA just approved a sense. And I'm a gastroenterologist. I practice 20% of my time. So my wife calls me 20% doctor. So you're going to see some GI shitty jokes. So, so this is, so this is a, a sensor, micro sensor, which is now in a pill. And it's not just a sensor, it's in the pill. It's FDA approved, especially for schizophrenic patients, right? So it's already in the Abilify medicine. It can not only track when a patient has taken the pill, but also can track when a person poops out the pill, talking about GI, right? So suddenly you have a 100% adherence measurement. I'm not saying you have 100% adherence to this, but you have a 100% way of measuring adherence to a patient taking a pill with this microsensor. And that's where technology has gone. That's where FDA has approved. And I have no affiliation with this company, but just to show a lot of the technology that's gonna happen is not just at one sensor level. It's gonna be interplay between the sensor with the AI that was discussed before, with augmented reality and other kind of a things. 
So this is a very cool startup from Israel. And what it does is you can actually, it has a band and the band, it can predict when a person has smoked a cigarette versus a person has combed the hair or done shaving, right? So you can, with that much accuracy, predict if a person is smoking because there's no great biomarker for smoking outside of blood. So you can use this as a digital biomarker, right? And not only you know that, because you have a smartphone in your hand, you have a GPS. So you can know when a person is having that trigger of smoking. So you can tell the person, oh, you're at your workplace. You, you are working with Dr. Treja. That's why you have so much stress. Versus you are at your, at your home that you really have to think how your personal family life is. So, so these all things are really what leads to a directional outcome, not just one outcome, not just one sensor per se. Um, and FDA has actually uh, uh, gone ahead and Apple and Google Verily are already part of it. It is looking at software as a medical device, SMD. So you're going to see a lot of those approvals coming up. In fact, FDA approves around 15 AI algorithms last year, uh, which are now FDA approved. So you're going to see a lot of SAMD getting approved where the software is going to manage the patients and working as a device uh, will be approved. We just recently bought Tesla and it blurred my vision of what a software and a hardware is, right? So in a way, the car is a hardware, right? We sit in there and it takes us somewhere. But everything in it for which my wife bought it is actually a software. She bought it not for the car, which takes from point, but because of auto driving capability, because she hates to drive, she hates to park the car and those kind of things. And what's really cool is, as soon as I sat in the car, it was raining very much like here, and there was a sensor which could detect what is the speed of the rain, and it actually adjusted the speed of the visor. And I thought that was cool, right? Automatically, the speed of the visor gets adjusted based on how much the rain it is. So, so that's how you integrate the sensors into a workflow that you feel, oh my God. And then the GPS automatically got updated. Initially, we never knew there was a truck coming from behind or a person in a bike coming from behind. Four days after we started driving, I suddenly started noticing it improved without a single touch from our side just from, a, from a internet, it updated the software, and I could see a person who is walking behind or a person who is driving a bike versus a truck that's behind, which actually impacts how I drive the car. So you're gonna see a lot more blurriness between hardware and software as we go ahead. But there are important things that we have to do together as a community, and that is building the evidence, right? There is so much, the $6 billion invested in health, digital health last year, and that has created a problem of plenty. We all get excited by all those variables, all those sensors, all those apps. But there are 350,000 medical apps. Why is that a problem? Have a person download a meditation app, tell the name of an app. The person either spells the wrong name or find 25 apps with the same name. So this is creating a problem of plenty. So actual consumption is not there. It's just we're living in an innovation world, little fictional world, but we really have to come to an alternate reality of how to make it mainstream. And what we have to avoid is build evidence enough that these kind of things don't happen because they are inevitably gonna happen unless until we do something around evidence. So we have combined forces with multiple health systems now to take the innovation that's happening in digital medicine, combining with the rigor of evidence-based medicine to combine a new, make a new science called evidence-based digital medicine. Every technology has to be evidence-based, validated, not only validated what it's supposed to do, but validated in terms of its impact on the healthcare. Because till we go that far impact on the healthcare, we will not be able to lead to transformation. 
So that is called as Node Health. It's a nonprofit organization. And we did our annual conference just a month ago. Um, and 400 uh, executive people came from all over U.S., few from uh, outside U.S. as well. And basically sharing the lessons of what we are doing within our health systems, within our peer community, within the startups. Because as soon as the world innovation comes, and Stefano, I don't know if UCSF is in the same boat, as soon as the world innovation comes, every health system stops sharing anything. They feel everything is an IP. And we looked at our pilots we were doing, 96% of the pilots we were doing, we had no IP at all. So we really have to do open innovation. We have to share what we are doing, any pilots we are doing, because if we don't share the pilots we are doing, then every other health system is gonna repeat the same pilot. And we are creating a redundancy in no efficiency in terms of improving the evidence for it. The second bottleneck we have to solve is, we somehow have to think about convergence. We cannot say, hey, I have this app or I have this thing and the data is in the cloud and you just map the data. Because it's fine initially, you will get some early adopters, but it's never gonna become mainstream. So this was our vision we had proposed to Dean around three years ago. We call it a digital daisy. How complex technologies have to be integrated in a digital daisy manner. So for a patient, again, I'll give an example of Tesla. If you open the Tesla's hood of the car, what do you see? Anyone? Nothing, storage trunk. That's how simple it is. So everything is hidden. There's no engine that you can see overtly. So we have to create an experience for patients which is exactly like a digital daisy. So a lot of our effort has been in innovation. We have done around 100 investigators served over the last six years, around 50 projects we have done. Initially, we used to do every project serially because every project had to build a new app. We have to combine with a new sensor and then we have to evaluate. It's a nine-month project. Now we are doing 20, 30 projects at the same time because we're using a common platform where we embed the apps, embed the sensor and the data coming back from them. And we do not have to train the physicians again and again because once they are into one platform, they have learned through one use case. You just bring on a new sensor or a new app. The workflow remains the same. So I'll just breeze through it because I want you to see how things can be integrated. And uh, <laughs> he's a tough cookie. You guys in UK, you know. They're hard on New Yorkers. So we showed 50% readmission reduction just by connecting a variable device which measures blood pressure. Nothing sexy, just blood pressure and weight, but coming at the right time to allow decisions to happen can lead to such high uh, patient engagement and readmission reduction. We were able to recruit, we were having a tough time recruiting patients, 16 patients we recruited over six months. We turned on this technology, we were able to get 206 patients recruited the same day. And that's the power of the platform. So this is just one day data, right? So I'm gonna just have a video play on how we're integrating technologies. I use the example of asthma just because I'm a more medical doctor, but you will be able to see how it can apply to orthopedics as well. We were able to stitch together seven different technologies. So for a patient, it's agnostic which telemedicine vendor it is, which patient reported outcome tool it is, but it maps to their patient journey, something which the which, uh, McLaren guys also talked about. In the end, I just want to end on this note that digital medicine is no more digital medicine. It's gonna be medicine and it is becoming medicine, right? We don't think of tele-shopping. We don't think of Amazon shopping different than thing. It's shopping, this Amazon is a conduit. And so we're gonna see a field of digital medicine which is gonna be taught in medical schools. But before it's taught to medical schools, you're gonna see for the first time practitioners practicing it earlier then it's gonna be taught in the medical schools. And that's where the speed of uh, digital medicine is. So just a small video, if you could play, how technologies are integrating. 
Okay. Thank you so much. So we're running a little bit behind. Uh, we we started a little bit late in this session, so we'll just go ahead and take just a few minutes uh, to to talk about some of the things that came up during your presentations, uh, and then we'll adjourn to the to the breakouts. But uh, Duncan, I wanted to start with you. McLaren's an English company. You've got the NHS there on your doorstep. Um, your business is, is sort of capped in a lot of ways. There are only twenty F one races. There, are, you want to cap the production of the McLaren vehicle supercars at about five thousand. Where do you see the healthcare sector or the healthcare market fitting in within the McLaren business? How big do you see it becoming and sort of where is it right now? Yeah, so um, yeah, from a, you know, there's, a, there's a question as to why we have the business in the first place. And um, it depends who you talk to, but you know, if there's shareholders, then there's a desire to create a technology company. And you know, the legacy of McLaren is you know, wants to be bigger than just you know just Formula One. Um, so that's the reason we, we we do that. But in terms of the business for us, it's you, you're absolutely right. It's yeah, you know, the other two businesses we have are capped as a you know, by actually you know uh, consciously capped in some ways, particularly with the hypercar program. But for digital health. Uh, we see that as a completely uncapped market um, for us, and yeah, we there's only so many. We're not you know, applied technologies itself is around about 600 people, so we've got from actually when I joined a couple to 600, uh, but we're not, not a massive company. So yeah, really the strategy is for us to and our shareholders to invest in core technologies that we can then apply in different markets, and we're trying to choose um, partners who can take us to the market um, uniquely. So whilst we're learning quickly about how we might make business out of this and the sorts of things that we need to do uh, we need partners to be able to actually take us into the market and actually develop the products products with us so yeah, the strategy to, for growth is for us to internally invest in core technologies that we think uh, can be agnostically applied to a number of markets and you know then we'll start to move on to other other technologies once we sort of get those businesses up and running but as a, as a company we're doing new things now actually and it's not it's not new for for most people in this room probably but we're starting to put those assets into companies uh, taking shares in those companies uh, work with startups uh, and actually get us into a place where we're developing products and not just doing pilots and, and projects you showed a couple of programs in the video there, the DNA Foundations program and the DNA Perform uh, program. Are those things that are going to be coming out in consumer models that are beyond the sort of race drivers and uh, racing market? Yeah, absolutely. So um, believe it or not, we're part of, sort of last year, we spent quite a bit of time turning actually that DNA program into a, into a business um, that sits under under my group. Um, believe it or not, that's the first time a Formula One company's even done that. So um, so that itself sits as a, as a business. Um but you're right. They um, we're already actually expanding that into other areas, and at the moment, it's um, through some of the unregulated consumer ones. And uh, I was talking earlier, but you know, one of the industries that we actually never really saw coming up was whilst we were identifying what great looks like in real racing drivers, actually in esports, uh, believe it or not, uh, we're applying that to and actually look what great looks like in esports drivers. Uh, and then you're starting to see actually then, well, people are picking up actually you're actually identifying what great looks like across you know, a, 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 actually a network, you know, people we've never seen before who are in the consumer environment. And actually, that's now applying out in other things now that we're discussing with other companies about how you sort of manage weight loss programs, women's health. So it's actually coming from more across the consumer side. 
initially um, on that that particularly high performance area, um, but it won't be long before it gets into some of the others because the principles are all the same. You know, managing someone for um, you know, preparing someone for surgery uh, to maximise their outcomes are all the same things. It's movement, nutrition, it's recovery. It's exactly the same sort of stuff. So we can see that getting there pretty quickly. And Ashish, just to turn to you and your work at Mount Sinai, it's an academic center, um, and and academic centers are not necessarily known for uh, being very liberal with the way they share information. And a lot of the companies in the room obviously also know that we get pretty protective about our corporate information. You and I first connected about the, the Node Health program that you're working on, and you were talking in your presentation around being able to have multiple programs working in parallel. Um, what would you like people to know about the opportunity for evidence and for sharing and, and collaboration in this very emerging field around digital medicine, which eventually will just become medicine as we know it? Right. Thank you. I think uh, my plea to all the innovators here is think of that whatever technology you build, it has to go through evidence pathway. And if you have to do 10 pilots with 10 different health systems, then that means 10 years because it's nine months to take, do a pilot, three months to write a result. And by the time you, you run out of funding. So we have to have a much better ecosystem. Uh, and the only way we can have a better ecosystem is actually by sharing the information on pilots we do. So any pilot you do, you do it in the right manner. We call it a trial. We don't even call a pilot. So other health system can trust that result. So they do not have to repeat that trial. Right. So so that's what pharma companies have been doing for ages. They do one pivotal trial that gets FDA approved. They don't have to then prove the do the same trial again and again. So I think we as an academic community has to come together in sharing things which are non-IP because I have limited bandwidth in validating an outside technology. And I can use that to redo the work which someone else has do, or I can do some work which is very novel. Right? So everyone wins in the game. The startups company win, the academic centers win, and the new knowledge gets created, not only knowledge of what is working, but the knowledge of implementation science, how to embed into a clinical workflow to actually get the maximum value of it. So the last question for both of you, because we, we are running a little bit over time. Uh, this is a, a, an opportunity for collaboration and, and for people to come together who are trying to push this industry forward. So I'll just give each of you an opportunity to express what is something that you need from people potentially in the audience that might be able to help you with that need. And then also, what would you uh, like to offer in terms of things that you'll be partners that you're looking for and collaborators in the various programs that you're working on? We'll close on that. Yes, it's really simple for us. Um, you know, we've got some core technology uh, and we need to exercise it properly. So we're looking for partners um, to apply some of that core technology, some of those tool sets I've explained. Can you, can you get into more detail? What kind of partner, <coughs> what, what sort of uh, organizations or, or areas are you looking for? Yeah, so I, I mean, orthopedics is a great one for us at the moment <coughs> because it's and one of the reasons we, I actually didn't say this, but it's a short pathway. Um, it's got some uh, market drivers around bundled care uh, and outcome-based uh, payment systems. So that's a perfect example of um, you, um, you know, a market. Uh, we're looking for similar ones like that, um, where we can put the core technology and we can identify a you know, patient or a therapy area that we can work in. But you know, importantly for us, it's it's how do you get to go to market very clear, clearly and, and absolute, absolute clarity around it. Because you know, as people have alluded to, you know, the business innovation, the commercial side of it, and how you get that into, get the, these technologies actually paid for and used correctly and designed correctly and the compliance is key. And we need to work with partners who, who are able to help us with that. You know, as I say, we're learning really quickly, but it's really in the nitty gritty. And actually, we know that you know perhaps it's 
20 or 30% to get a concept and a pilot, 70, 80% of the work is actually getting it in the hands of, of, of people. And that's, that's what we're looking for. Companies who, who have got that ambition actually. Okay. Anything else uh, in terms of help that you need for members of the, of the audience or anything like that? Uh, it's probably a thousand things, but... <laughs> okay, well, you can grab Duncan uh, yeah, during one of the breaks. How about you, Ashish? Yeah, so I think uh, in terms of what we can offer, uh, with No Delta Nonprofit Network, we have one in six patients uh, um, in U.S., part of that uh, hospital network which is joined. So I think we're becoming the largest validation network. So if you do feel the need that your technology has to be validated... But we don't do single site validation. We only do multi-site validation to decrease the biases. So that's where we can partner and help the technology move forward uh, and also publish as well, uh, you know, general digital biomarkers. In terms of need, I think it's more about whatever you're doing, disseminate it. It's, it's not you're losing your IP, but the science of what is working needs to be disseminated. The same which Apple has to do for Apple EKG uh, kind of a stuff. So I think that makes us a knowledge is going to be empowering because if more and more people get to know the knowledge from published literature, from the work that you do, then ultimately the physicians are going to be not the hindrance. They're going to have already read about it. So when you come with the technology, they will be prepared, actually much more prepared than they are right now. Brilliant. So I will invite Stefano Bini to come back up on the stage and tell us about the breakouts. And please just give another round of applause for the guests. On this, our fifth episode of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast, we focused on sensors and their impact on process improvement and our ability to understand the world around us. We introduced the concept of software as a medical device and the idea of validating medical apps through evidence-based digital medicine. In this episode, we therefore set the stage for our next episode, a deep dive case study into how one company, OrthoSensor, went to market with a very focused and precise sensor to be used in orthopedic surgery. We hope you enjoyed listening to these presentations delivered in San Francisco from the DocSF stage in early January 2019. We thank you for joining our journey as we catalyze the adoption of digital health tools in healthcare and use orthopedics as the uniting paradigm. Please become part of our community at docsf.health. We want to work with you to make the future of healthcare present. I am your host, Stefano Bini, on the Digital Orthopedics Podcast from DocSF. Farewell for now.